Lord, we thank you for your name, Jesus, Yeshua. You have become our salvation. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. I spent some time last month on a spiritual retreat up in the mountains. And there were times of just absolute glory, but there were also times where I had to reflect how sinful I had been and just merely looking at the number of times I complained and a reflection on the number of times the Israelites complained on their journey to the promised land and how angry God got with their complaints. Because essentially, when we complain, we say, God can't do it. And the issue for us in our hearts is, are we ready? Are we ready to walk into the goodness and the provision of God? Or do we rather stay in our complaint and in our sin and in our comfortableness and in our routine of life? So during this time, let us examine ourselves and where we find ourselves falling short The good news we have is that we can turn to him and say, forgive. Set me free from this. I don't want to live a life of complaining. I don't want to live a life of bitterness and resentment. I don't want to live a life of anxiety. I want to live a life trusting you. And I found for me that when I do that, wonderful things start to happen. For me, it became a conviction. Am I living every moment realizing that he's there, that he's just a prayer away. And if things are getting overwhelming, all I have to do is bow my head and his presence comes. And he is the all-sufficient one. He can do it for me. Let's get into what the Jewish people do and how they pray. And the Elul, E-L-U-L, that's an acronym for this wonderful passage in the Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And that acknowledgement every day, we belong to him. We belong to him. We are the sheep of his pasture. And when you pray that on a continual basis, you just acknowledge that he's the shepherd. He's the Lord of your life. You're his. And it brings that peace to know that his desire is towards you. He's not going to turn you away. His desire is towards you. That's the foundational prayer. Then there is the prayer from Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And I'll just read the passage. Keep in mind context here because there's some great promises but you need to know the context so that the promises make sense the context is the israelites have just sinned and not just a little bit of sin and this isn't complaining about bread and meat they had made themselves a golden calf and then had celebrated around it the bible says they rose up to play there's a lot of rabbinical interpretation I won't get into, but it was a declaration that the golden calf had delivered them from Egypt. And they bowed down and worshipped it. And God got mad. 
Moses intercedes, and this passage comes. He is asking for the glory to be revealed. In Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. All right? You get in the picture? He's on a mountain. He has interceded. It is a 40-day period. He has asked that God wouldn't kill them. And he's asked to see the glory. The Lord passes before him and says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, there's a lot here. And just unpack it a little bit, that last part, for what we're seeing currently in America. We turned away from God over the 60s and the 70s. The first step was you can't pray in public and you can't pray in a public school. You can't do these things. Second step was it's okay to kill your children. It's okay to abort at will. You can get into the divorce at will. I remember growing up where you couldn't buy anything on Sunday. The Sabbath was holy. Now, in our culture, how often do we on our own lives say it's okay to work, it's okay to buy and sell? We're too busy to take a Sabbath. Now look at the consequences of it. And is our culture a better culture today? Once you start a little bit of iniquity, God says, I'm going to visit it on the third and fourth generation. Well, we started getting away from it. We stopped observing the Sabbath. We stopped prayer. We stopped valuing life, treasuring our children. We stopped all of these things. And we descended, some parts of our culture descended into hedonism. We became worshipers of the almighty dollar. Our American dream is built on this personal individual success, and it's based on how big is your house, how big is your car, how successful is your career, how famous are you. And all of these other golden calves that we've erected, what has it done to our culture? And what has it done to the church? You look at these things, and in the context of a 50-year span, You can say, well, maybe it was gradual, but is this verse coming true that the iniquity is now being visited and is it multiplying? And we now have a culture that literally does not know the stories of the Bible. So in the context of returning to God, we have people say, return to what? I don't know him. I don't know the stories. I don't know what he did. What are they going to return to? In the context of the church, have we become complacent with these things? And where is the standard? Who is going to raise the standard? That's the judgment side. Here's the really good part. We're merciful, gracious, long-suffering, 
abundant in goodness, truth, keeping mercy unto the thousandth generation. Now, that's the good part. When you look at American history, where there are righteous men and women who founded us, that founded these great institutions that we have, that gave us this wonderful constitution, allowing freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all of these wonderful freedoms, that will continue for a thousand generations. But if we cut this curse off of not following the law, we can do that. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Just those expressions of who he is. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh, Yahweh El. So this is God himself repeating his name, Yahweh, Yahweh El. And then saying, merciful and gracious. So in our time of repentance, realize the one who causes everything to be, the I am, the I am, the one who has created it all, he says his very essence, his very nature is to be merciful and gracious. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are sinners in the hands of a very merciful and gracious God who absolutely wants to bring us into the promised land. But what he's asking for is if you will only obey me and let me help you, then you will have plenty. The more we're asleep to our disobedience, the more we walk away from him, not even realizing it. Our reaction should be, this is great, because it means God's going to be glorious. He's going to see me through this. It's going to be awesome on the other side. And through this, I'm going to learn how great he is. But in the middle of it, it's like, oh, woe is me. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I've got it the worst that it's ever, ever been. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. You ever wondered why judgment isn't immediate? When you're thinking about other people, why didn't God just judge them right now? I am very glad he is long-suffering, because I have definitely put that to the test. He's long-suffering. He is abounding in goodness and truth. Yes. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin. He cleanses. He doesn't just forgive, he completely removes it. And makes it as if I've never done it. Yeah. Set yourself up on a daily basis to walk through three things. First, Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Always start off with God from a place of knowing you're loved. That you don't have to beg him for this. You're loved. He wants you to make it. He's in your corner. He's loving you. He wants to love you into the kingdom. Then go to Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. 
and just meditate on all those attributes. The Lord, the Lord God, he's the creator of everything, the one who causes everything to be, is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't that wonderful? Just meditate on that. Then turn to Psalm 51. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I, I will read verses 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. The context here for Psalm 51 is this is the psalm of David after the prophet Nathan came to him. You sinned. You sinned with Bathsheba. And this is his psalm and his turning and his repentance after his sin. Those three things, how much do we need to turn? How much do we need to get rid of things in our life that are keeping us from pursuing wholeheartedly the promises of God that each one of us has? You can get complacent in Christianity. You can get very comfortable with God as love, God as forgiving. And in that process, gradually harden your heart that you don't even realize anymore how sinful you are. And you can turn away from him. That's why I love looking back at these feasts and these ways, learning from the Torah, learning from the festivals, learning from the traditions that there are methods that we can have that do this, that prepare ourselves every single year. Am I ready to die? Am I ready to meet him? Am I fully appreciating the salvation that Jesus paid that price for? Am I right with God? And if we do this, we'll come to the realization that without him, it's absolutely hopeless. It'll give you a whole new appreciation of what Jesus did for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross, and in the resurrection. I've come to the memory of my own experience with death and a doctor telling me I should have died when I had cerebral malaria in Manila. I picked it up on a mission trip to Thailand and... When you get cerebral malaria, it's not fun. And I definitely complained. I didn't see the glory of the Lord in it. And I actually got mad. Why? I was on a mission trip for you. This isn't fair. There were plenty of times when I was in sin where you could have struck me dead and I would have said, you're right. But why are you doing it when I'm trying to do good? What is this all about? You ever have those questions? Why is this happening to me? Ever go through that? I found in that near-death experience that when you die, it's lonely. It's just you and God. There's no place to go. There can be people with you in the room. They're not going through it. They're looking on. They may be sad. 
They may be able to hold your hand. But what you're going through, you're going through all on your own. In that time, the things you used to think were important don't matter at all. Nothing matters. I had very simple prayers. And obviously I didn't die. Obviously the glory of the Lord came. But it took me being willing to say, Lord, if you want to kill me, it's okay. The first time I said that and prayed that, I was doing it out loud. I could hear my own voice, and from the tone of my own voice, I judged myself, you didn't really mean that. Let's go back and do that one again. The next time I got it out, and I meant it. To my absolute amazement, I started singing, This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You remember that? I had no idea it came from Psalm 118, which is the very psalm that Jesus sang when he broke bread with his disciples. They sang a hymn and then they went out. And he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the last song, psalm that Jesus sang before the Garden of Gethsemane, Psalm 118. And imagine him facing what he's getting ready to face, saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I'll leave you with this from the Apostle Paul, and it's his introduction to the Second Corinthians in his first chapters of his letters are always filled with wonderful doctrine, but he gives a personal story and then ends it in verse 9 with, in fact, we expected to die. He gave up all hope. He expected to die. When I was in that hospital bed in Manila, I expected to die. I had a doctor later tell me, you were on death watch, we expected you to die. I've never had a doctor say that. He added, you should have died. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. Isn't that wonderful? When you look at the hardship of your life, what you've gone through, is it producing this in you? Where you're no longer relying on yourself, but you're relying on God who raises the dead. Now, as we look at America today, can you be too dead for a resurrection? As you examine your own heart, can you be too sinful that you can't be forgiven? No. No. He wants to raise you in the newness of life. He wants to give you abundant life. That's why he came. So let us have hope here as we examine ourselves, as we prepare for death. Let us not rely on ourselves or any ritual or anything we do. Let us rely only on God who raises the dead. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would seal this. And Lord, I ask for every Christian in America today that there would be a turning. All those who claim your name, who claim to follow you, teach them 
that if they love you, they will obey your commandments. And Lord, whatever trials, whatever struggles we're going through, give us the assurance that we can rely on you because you raise the dead. Do it, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.